Hello! Oh, hi! Welcome to Flatpak History of Sweden. This is episode 14, From Vikings to Rus. Ooh. Let's get straight into the story because we've got a lot to talk about. Yes. Last week we talked about how the earliest Swedes ventured eastwards and settled in the area. We talked about how they took over the administration of some towns and helped found others like Straya Ladoga, which flourished as a centre for trade in this time. It became part of this nodal trade network that we're becoming more and more familiar with as a major hub for the east, and it helped bring goods from the Byzantine Empire and the Abbasid Caliphate enter all the way into the European market. Yeah, this trade activity and prowess, along with, let's face it, military expansion, naturally brought these Vikings into contact with the two big powers in the region, the Abbasid Caliphate and the Byzantine Empire. And so last time we looked at this in a bit more detail as we studied the Byzantine and Rus embassy to Louis the Pious in 839 and saw how the word Rus was It seemed equally applicable to the Viking settlers in the East and those originally from Sweden. Exactly. And before we start this week, we should apologize for Mm. a slight mispronunciation of the word or town Novgorod. I think we spent all of the last episode saying Novogrod when it's in fact Novgorod. So we look forward to saying it correctly for the rest of this episode. We're very sorry. Please accept our apologies. I think we've had two or three downloads from Russia, so hopefully they are not cursing us at this point. Yeah, we apologize in particular to our Russian-speaking listeners for this uh, mispronunciation. Whilst we're on the topic of languages and pronunciation, should we do our Swedish phrase for the week? Absolutely. I haven't looked into this one at all because I've been busy researching other episodes, but you've been looking into this one for us. So this week's phrase has religious origins, or a biblical origin in particular, because while modern Sweden is a very secular country, for much of our history we have been a deeply religious Christian, first Catholic and then Protestant country, and it's only natural that this is sometimes reflected in our language. So that's why the phrase for this week is Varför ser du flisan i din broders öga, men märker inte bjälken i ditt eget öga? Sometimes you might just abbreviate it to say flisan i din broders öga, men bjälken i din egen. The literal translation to English is Why do you see the splinter in your brother's eye, but not the log in your own? So a a phrase based around uh, wood and ice. Okay, so that sounds a bit familiar to something I've probably heard in English, but I'm not entirely sure. So do you want to tell us more about it? Yeah, so it's originally a Bible quote from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 7. In most English translation of the same Bible passage, it reads, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Yeah, I definitely haven't heard of that. No, maybe some of our our listeners, if you've had a Christian upbringing, uh, you might have come across that Bible passage. The meaning is quite straightforward, actually. It calls out that you notice someone else's flaws, however minor they may be, 
you notice the flaw in others, but you ignore your own shortcomings, even if they're similar. So, for example, you know, you might tell your friend that he or she has gained weight now during lockdown, but actually you've put on a bit of weight yourself. So, you know, why do you notice and point out theirs, but you don't notice or point out your own flaw? That's very harsh, but I think very human in some respects. It is very human. I think this is uh, applicable to all of us. But is it a common phrase? Or is it only used in religious... No, on the contrary, I think most Swedes might have at this point forgotten that it is originally a Bible quote. And it's just something you say, flisan i din brodors öga och bjälken i din egen. It's something you might say day-to-day language and not reflect on the actual biblical origins of it. Yeah, okay, cool. That's very interesting. But shall we get on with the Vikings in the East? Yes, they are not reading the Bible uh, so much at this stage, although some of them have started to pick it up. Yes, and we'll get onto that a bit later on, or probably next time, actually. So last week we talked about this dual nature of the Swedish Vikings in the East at the start of the 800s and about how they became known as the Rus, but were equally identified as Swedes by people like Louis the Pious back in the West. This was a very brief explanation of the nature of a controversy which is split into two main camps of opinions that we should go into a little bit more detail now as the Rus are becoming more and more of a thing. The arguments are split into these two sides. You have the Normanist side and the anti-Normanist side, and their differences revolve around how far or fast these Vikings adapted to their local Slavic cultures when they settled or took over places like Ladoga and Novgorod. Exactly. The anti-Normanist, they argue that the settlements were basically Slavic and these Vikings were subsumed within the local culture quite quickly, probably after a generation or so, meaning that about the time when Anskar, uh, our friend from previous episodes, he died in 865, these Viking settlers had been subsumed by Slavic culture. On the other hand, the Normanists, they suggest that these places were ruled by the Vikings and had a very Viking identity, discarding the local Slavic ideas and culture into a sort of second-class citizenship. Perhaps unsurprisingly, local Russian and Ukrainian historians tend to favour the anti-Normanist or pro-Slavic side of the argument, and this was especially true during the time of the Soviet Union, whereas Scandinavian historians broadly emphasise the role of the Vikings in the creation and development of these soon-to-be states. Like ever, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle with bits of both, and this is something that Philip Parker proposes in his book, The North Men's Fury, which has an excellent chapter on this entire concept and the whole expansion of the Vikings slash the Rus into this area of the world. He talks a lot about how the Swedish Vikings would have integrated, but questions exactly how deep and quickly this would have gone at the start. Luckily, we have the great source, the Primary Chronicle, which describes many of these events which occurred over the years as the Rus began to spread throughout the Russian and Ukrainian area. 
we're going to be using this source this week, next week, and probably even the week after as we start looking into the story of how the Rus became what they're known as today. And so, starting off, it says that the Vikings sent three brothers, along with all the Rus, to rule over people called the Chuds, the Slavs, the Krivichians, and the Ves, with the three brothers basing themselves in Novgorod and two other smaller towns nearby. It was then that the region around Novgorod became known as the land of the Rus. Okay, so that adds a little to what we were talking about last week. Philip Parker has chosen to take the exact dates quite lightly, you know, thinking they probably refer to a time when the local patchwork of tribes were interrupted by the incoming Scandinavians. But that the specific details are probably a mixture of truth, myth, and oral retelling before the chronicle was written down, a few hundred years later, in fact. In general, it seems like the idea that Swedes and others coming to the region and eventually taking over the administration of the area is a correct one. Yes, and even the Soviet historians accept that this was a thing. It's just that they argue that they quickly stop being Vikings and become Slavic, or in their eyes, Russians, quite quickly. Yeah. However, we can see that in how Ladoga becomes gradually more Swedish or more Scandinavian in style by the time of the 830s. There's even an extensive Scandinavian-style cemetery on the outskirts of the town, and hundreds of burial mounds around the landscape. By the 10th century, these stopped being built, so the Vikings had either been assimilated or had absorbed the local burial practices originating from the Slavic population. Last week, we also looked at how Arabic sources were prominent in this period, and when Ibn Fadlan is encountering the Rus in the 920s, they really seem to have been well established in this area of Western Russia. But what did actually happen between the Byzantine embassy to Ingelheim in 839 and this high point of the early mid-900s that we'll get to both this week and next week? For this episode and the next episode, we're going to do a run-through of the main events of this period and go up to around the 950s. And at that point, we'll then effectively say goodbye to the Rus in terms of our overall narrative, at least for a while, as we get to the point where it definitely looks like they've become entirely independent of the Swedes back home, despite some of the same customs remaining, and lots of new Swedes still coming to the area, but they're definitely not part of a political entity that has anything to do with life back in Sweden. Unlike the early 830s from last time, where we could see that there was definitely still some relatively close connection. So we'll dive in and see what uh, the Roos got up to, but bearing in mind the caveat that A lot of sources disagree with each other at this point, so a lot of the information should be treated as a rough guide rather than definite history. Especially when we talk about dates, that's one of the key things, because a lot of the chronology, especially later in the period, the Byzantine sources say something that the primary chronicle says happened in a different order or a different year, so just keep that in mind. With that being said, let's begin. 
So in 860, the three brothers that Chris mentioned briefly before, they were called Rurik, Sinius, and Truvor, or Truvor, if I'm going to pronounce it in Swedish, came with a host of Vikings to the Ladoga area of northern Russia. Rurik was the eldest brother. He took control of the fledging town of Novgorod, with his two younger brothers taking two nearby towns. Now, unfortunately for them, these two brothers don't last very long at all. The primary chronicle says they're both dead within two years. Oh no, poor Sinius and Truvor, they fall away really quickly. And that's the last we'll hear of them. Absolutely no evidence to say that this was due to murder or foul play, but Rurik does manage to take over control of both their towns and is then immediately the biggest player in the area, and he begins to found this small state based around Novgorod. This consolidation of more than one or two towns seems to be step one in the direction of the Rus becoming their own proper political entity. The Primary Chronicle makes it out as a pretty big deal, and some people even count this as the very first step in the life of Russia itself as a place. Yeah, absolutely. However, this new place isn't too big of a draw for all the Vikings. They're not that keen on going there as a big group of them. Don't think it will make them rich enough. So some set sail further south, Almost immediately, in fact, they sailed further down the Dnieper River. They were being led by two leaders called Askold and Dir, heading south for, you know, more plunder and riches. As you do. They finally end up spotting what they call a small city on a hill, which was the Slavic town of Kiev. They took it with... The two Vikings, Askold and Dia, becoming the rulers of the area. But almost immediately, their curiosity of further conquest sent them onwards once more. Yes, and this happens really quickly because we're still in 860, and this next event is the real explosion of the Rus onto the military scene in the area. The Rus kept going south, led by Askold and Deir, and they reached Constantinople, which they called at this point Miklagard, or the Great City. And they arrived on the 18th of June, 860. So that's 1,160 years ago. Um, I think my maths is right on that. They arrive completely unexpectedly because the appearance of these barbarians, as the Byzantines called them, caused huge panic amongst the population of their capital. One of the reasons for the panic was that their emperor, now at this point Michael III, who was unfortunately nicknamed the Drunkard, um, he definitely liked to drink, he was off with a large Byzantine army campaigning against the caliphate in the east. At the same time, the Byzantine navy was engaging with Arab pirates on the Mediterranean Sea, so all of the professional warriors pretty much of the empire were off elsewhere. Michael had been emperor for around 18 years or so, but he was two at the point where he became emperor. So he's probably really only just about getting into his stride as emperor and his city is being attacked by the Rus. Yeah, which is off to a bad start. To give some context, this Michael III emperor, he was the son of Theophilus, who we met in our last episode, who 
was uh, hanging out with Louis the Pious. But the defence of this vulnerable city of Constantinople was left to the patriarch. The patriarch is a leader of the Christian religion in the empire. And in fact, luckily, that was slightly better than leaving the military nowadays in the hands of, say, the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury, since these patriarchs, they were major political figures involved in the day-to-day running of the state, even though they were religious figures. So they kind of knew what was going on, even if they weren't directly involved. Yeah. Uh, The patriarch also had the urban prefect, or effectively as mayor of Constantinople, to help him. And that was a guy called Niketas Orifias. Sadly, this patriarch, who was called Photius, was quite afraid, actually, saying, and I quote, Why has this dreadful thunderbolt fallen on us out of the furthest north? Indeed, that would be something that I would be saying, probably. The ruse are described as sailing towards the capital on a calm sea with their swords raised in the air, like I draw them on the episode pictures. <laughs> and Photius spent his time composing stirring sermons to steady the nerves of the citizens, although its dramatic language does actually make it seem like it probably did the opposite, because one of the quotes said, Behold, a people cometh from the north country. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roareth like the sea. Yeah, that wouldn't necessarily calm me down. No, I think that's going to make you be a bit worried. (laughs) Yeah. But their appearance is quite surprising in this really violent way because the last time that we know that the Rus had come to Constantinople, they were there in relatively peaceful ways negotiating this treaty and being part of Theophilus's embassy in 839. Photius says that this time they came from an obscure nation, a nation of no account, a nation ranked among slaves. So Photius clearly either didn't see them the previous trip or just didn't think that they were worthy of any note. So the Rus landed on this first day and they began by plundering the suburbs of Constantinople which were crucially lying just outside the huge defensive walls that the city had because like almost any city ever built Constantinople had outgrown its original plan and foundations quite early on so a lot of the day-to-day citizens and normal buildings and churches were outside of the main defences which certainly isn't very helpful on a day like this when your army's not even there to defend you. No, absolutely not. And the Rus continued to launch coastal raids around the Sea of Marmara and they burned all the houses, churches and monasteries they could find, even slaughtering some of the patriarch's servants. However, because the walls were so large, the Vikings knew that they would not stand a chance on breaching them, so they just never tried. They didn't use siege equipment, but the Byzantines didn't know that they wouldn't do that, so they just keep attacking the suburbs until they eventually leave in August, seemingly randomly. Photius, he called it divine intervention, but the Rus probably left to make sure that they got back to Kiev before the winter arrived. Nobody wants to sail during winter on those old 
risky boats. No. So this was truly the first time we have records of when these Swedish Vikings, or in the shape of the Rus, attacked a major target and were promptly noted down as people to keep an eye on. Yes, an eye on and a shield ready, quite probably. Luckily, we can go into quite a bit more detail on this attack because there's a lot of these Byzantine sources which mention it. And uh, one guy who has collated all of these and written a great article is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Suras, who served for a long time in the US Army and the US Reserves. He's the author of at least 26 books on military history, so he's kind of a good go-to guy. His article is called The Fury of the Northmen, and it was originally published in the military history magazine Armchair General. Our lieutenant colonel quotes Photius as saying that the Viking fleet was made up of around 200 ships with as many as 20,000 Vikings surging ashore, but Arephus, the mayor, shut the gates of the capital just in time, leaving just the suburbs to the Vikings. While they saved the city itself from falling to the Vikings, this didn't do anything to help the people living in the suburbs. Among the prisoners and slaves that the Vikings managed to capture, they took 22 servants of the previous patriarch on board their ships and hacked them to death with axes. Uh, That's brutal. Yeah, pretty grim. Yeah, the Byzantines were now experiencing the same horrors that people like Louis the Pious would have told them about during their various embassies. And Photius, he gave a sermon that betrayed the sense of desperation at this time. Remember, we said he didn't exactly remain calm. So one of the longer quotes from him reads... Where is the Christ-loving emperor now? Where are the armies? Where are the arms, machines, military councils, equipment? Are not all these withdrawn to meet an attack of other barbarians? And the emperor endures far distant labours beyond the frontiers. Along with him the army went to share his hardships. Manifest ruin and slaughter confronts us. Definitely sounds like he's pretty worried. Luckily, the mayor showed vigour and skill in his defence of the city, and he even uh, maybe took some of this experience forward in the future as he shifted career somewhat, going from an administrator to becoming one of the Byzantines' greatest admirals. So that's a good career change for Mm -hmm. him. Photius actually did manage to redeem himself a bit, and he ended up becoming one of the most revered patriarchs and leading intellectuals of his age. During the siege, he did actually perform something which was very helpful, because he helped keep Constantinople's population from panicking through some of his other actions. Most notably, he took a religious relic, which was the Sash of the Theotokos, who was the patron saint of Constantinople, and he carried it along the walls of the city in a great procession. He was begging for divine intervention as the city's population followed him through the streets in this amazing parade and procession of religion, which sounds like an amazing sight to see, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. And luckily for them too, the Vikings didn't know how to do a proper siege against huge great walls like the city walls of Constantinople. So the city probably never was in any real danger. 
unless they'd done something stupid like you know, opening the doors. But of course, that didn't save the suburbs from being raided, looted and burned. And also, maybe the people of Constantinople didn't know that the Vikings didn't know how to lay siege. So the fear was real. Yeah, this took quite a long time to happen. And so that meant that Michael III, the emperor, had enough time to actually return from campaign and sneak back into the city after crossing the Bosphorus Strait in a small boat and avoiding the Vikings. And so it's at that point that the Vikings decided to leave. Perhaps they had found enough treasures in the suburbs and they were satisfied and wanted to leave. Or perhaps they were worried that the return of Emperor Michael might have led to a large battle that they couldn't afford. It was probably a bit of both. Plus, as we've said, the time of year, they would have wanted to get back to Kiev before winter kicked in. The Byzantine writers, however, particularly religious figures like Photius, claim that the Vikings fled after divine intervention following the Great Procession. Either way, the Vikings definitely still won this one, even if they didn't make it into the great city itself and with all the spoils that would have followed from that. They'd managed to ravage the biggest city in Europe at the time's suburbs and humble the great empire, even if they didn't actually have to defeat anyone in an actual battle. Askold and Deer returned all the way back to Kiev with their treasure and had a chance to try and consolidate their local power and turn Kiev into a real town to be reckoned with and coincidentally, you know, potentially even rival Novgorod and Rurik for his title of sort of strongest Rus going. Yeah, now the Rus seem to be quite settled in the area by this point. By 862, Rurik has his small, you know, mini kingdom in the north, and Asgold and Deer, they have their area around Kiev. So it's now that we get a bit of a story that is similar in some way to Ansgar's story, just with a bit less detail. The Christianization of the Rus is supposed to have begun quickly in the 860s, so quite early on in their relationship with the Byzantines, they came into contact with Christianity. This was the first stage of a process that continued well into the 11th century, so despite this being an important event, there aren't really too many details on it. The most authoritative or reliable source on this first encounter with Christianity is actually a letter written by Patriarch Photius, which is dated to early 867, the year when a guy called Basil becomes emperor after murdering Michael III. Great names, as always, and more murder. So we're definitely getting into proper medieval-style politics at this point, aren't we? He references the attack on Constantinople uh, of 860 and also tells the local religious figures to whom he is writing that after the nearby Bulgar tribe started to embrace Christianity in 863, some of the Rus apparently followed suit. A bit of a trend in uh, adopting Christianity there. They had done this so zealously that Photius thought that they deserved uh, or needed a bishop, in fact. Yeah, this is definitely sounding very similar to the life of Ansgar. 
I guess this is probably because most of the good story writing from this time comes from ambassadors or religious figures and they're interested in telling these stories. Notice how they also... It's all very similar to the life of Ansgar in the sense that they're asking for bishops to be sent to them. Either way, later Byzantine historians not only all agreed with Photius's original conclusion that the Rus had abandoned their raid on Constantinople because of divine intervention, but they also state that because the Rus were so amazed by the miracles performed by Photius and his procession that they asked the Byzantines to send them this bishop. Again, this sounds like... King Björn asking Louis the Pious to send the Swedes some priests to help bring Christianity to Birka. Further evidence for this comes from writings by Constantine VII, a later emperor who said it was his grandfather, Emperor Basil, who was the one to convert the Rus in the 860s. That could make sense. The biography of Basil explains how the Byzantines helped the Rus convert because of their persuasive words, but also rich presents. Persuasive words, but also some nice stuff. Yeah, and these religious missionaries always seem to have some sort of nice gift on hand, just like Ansgar missing all those 40 books when he was shipwrecked in golden gifts that got washed away by the sea or the stolen by the Vikings. Yeah, apparently they weren't uh, you know, strangers to bribes, it seems. In this case, these gifts, they included gold and silver items, but apparently also precious tissues. Whatever they are. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, precious tissues for uh, luxurious gnosis. Anyway, it does appear that Basil had at least converted the Rus elite, as contemporary authors from the Caliphate seem to back up their Christian counterparts. Ibn Qurabaye, when writing about the Rus he met in the 880s, he says that they, quote, style themselves as Christian, but that implies that he maybe didn't see them as fully Christians like the Byzantines, just that they styled themselves that way. Yeah, well, perhaps they were just putting on a show, so they kept getting more gifts from the Byzantines. More precious tissues. Yep, or, or perhaps that, you know, they were only halfway to becoming fully Christianized. A lot of Soviet historians who have looked into this period proposed that Christianity came to the Rus in this time, but was only really adopted by these elites. This is because the Rus go back to being pagan relatively quickly after this, only a few decades later. But these Soviet historians are quite keen, or were very keen, a lot of them are long dead, but they were very keen to downplay any hint of the first Russian state being founded by foreigners. So that would imply that the local Slavs living under the Rus were not too influenced by these Viking arrivals and their new adaptation of Christianity. This return of the pagan religion to the Viking elites happened because of a series of important events in our timeline of these Eastern Swedes. It all revolves around the family of Rurik and how they came to blows with Asgold and Deer in Kiev. Yeah, at some point in the 870s, could have been 879, uh, Rurik, who was still ruling the large Rus area around Novgorod, He died, and he left his realm to a relative called Oleg, because Rurik's son, Iger, he was a very young boy, so couldn't take over power himself just yet. 
After Oleg established himself, he started casting his eye elsewhere, looking for weaker groups of Rus that he could take over. And he settled on Kiev, which was still being run by Askold and Dia, in 880 or 882. Again, the sources are conflicting. Oleg set out for Kiev. Luckily, we have a very nice piece from the Primary Chronicle about what happens next. Oleg set forth, taking with him many warriors from among the Varangians, the Chuds, the Slavs, the Merians, and all the Kravitians. He arrived with his Kravitians at Smolensk, captured the city, and set up a garrison there. Thence he went on and captured Lubeck, where he also set up a garrison. He then came to the hills of Kiev and saw how Asgold and Deer reigned there, he hid his warriors in the boats, left some others behind, and went forward himself, bearing the child Igor. He thus came to the foot of the hill, and after concealing his troops, he sent messengers to Asgold and Deer, representing himself as a stranger on the way to Greece, on an errand for Oleg and for Igor, the prince's son. He requested that they should come forth to greet them as members of their own race. Asgold and Deer straight away came forth. Then all the soldiers jumped out of the boats, and Oleg said to Asgold and Deer, You are not princes, nor even of princely stock, but I am of princely birth. Igor was then brought forward, and Oleg announced that he was the son of Rurik. They killed Asgold and Deer, and after carrying them to the hill, they buried them there. Wow, that, that was even more dramatic than the life of Ansgar, I think. There is a lot in there to uh, think about and sort of pick apart. Firstly, Oleg uses Igor's name as a reason for claiming Kiev, as he was the son of Rurik. But they also explain that Kiev was seen as separate from the Novgorod state, as they came to greet Askold and Dia, not because he ruled them, but just because they were quote-unquote, members of their race. Yes, so that's evidence that they were, you know, potentially all Swedes from the beginning, but they weren't being ruled by the same person at the same point. I like the fact that Oleg is hiding his men in ships and boats and on the hill, and then they all jump out after a big moment that seems to be, should be in the Lion King or something. They're holding the baby or very young Igor up to lure Askold and Deer out. So perhaps it wasn't actually a young Igor, or maybe it was a stand-in or a prop, because holding up the prince of your region is probably a risky move i don't know and and also either way it seems deeply immoral by modern standards to use a small child to engage in this incredibly bloody uh, battle yeah but they're the vikings what do you expect them to do this True. is exactly what i would expect the vikings to do <laughs> definitely uh morals and, and gentlemanly behavior is uh, is not what they're famous for exactly and so there also continues to be a lot of fighting beforehand in other towns that oleg takes on his way towards kiev because before this adventure happens, there definitely does seem to be this sense of the Rus having their own little individual towns that they're all ruling on their own rather than being in part of one big kingdom or small state. They're fending for themselves rather than being vassals of Rurik, who's ruling from up in the northwest. 
Indeed, it seems also that after this time, Christianity disappears from Kiev for a while. So Soviet historians certainly took this to mean that Oleg was pagan and perhaps killed Asgold and Dia, especially because they were Christian. As ever, we will never know exactly, but it is... Once again, probably a little bit of everything. Which does seem like we're sort of giving up, I think, when we say this a fair few times. But the answer is that we will never actually know. But it is fascinating to see all the different opportunities and the potential for the reasons why this would have happened. On this theme of Christianity beginning to spread, one Russian historian called Vasily Tsatsiev also called Askold the first Russian martyr because he believes he was killed specifically because he was Christian. But regardless of the reason why Askold and Deer were killed, they do all these historians do seem to accept that the pagan ways returned to Kiev after Oleg takes it and adds it to his domain because it comes up in other sources much later on that they are still pagan. We won't continue this story for much longer, but there are a few key things to look at briefly before we leave it for today. So Oleg is in charge of the Rus and seems to be ruling from Kiev at this time, or at least he spends a lot of time there. It is recorded that in the first few years, Oleg consolidates his rule on the surrounding area, attacking places ruled by peoples such as the Derevlane, Severane, and Radimici. There isn't too much more information for the rest of the 800s, but luckily Oleg continues ruling well into the 900s. You'll perhaps be happy to know that a lot of the details concern fighting, so that's something to look forward to. Definitely. It's in 907 when it becomes Oleg's turn to lead an attack on Constantinople. He took the same route down as Askold and Deer, arriving with 200 ships. The same as when they went, so... It seems to be the magic number. Should you invade anywhere, you should have 200 ships. Yes, and it's this similarity that's led some historians to think that the original sources are getting this confused with the 860 raid, but let's treat this as a separate occasion because there's definitely actually a lot more information that does corroborate this example. Now, importantly, Constantinople has a natural harbour called the Golden Horn. The Byzantines defended this from sea attack by racing a giant chain across it, a bit like a tripwire. Except this chain is strong enough to stop ships getting through and launching a sea invasion. This tactic was used for centuries, until the 1400s in fact. The Byzantines were getting prepared for these attacks for quite a while, it seemed, as Emperor Leo IV in the 890s made a military manual for his navy, and it lists the tactics to fighting against northern Scythians who used small, fast vessels in their assaults, which sounds like Vikings to me. Yes, definitely Vikings. Um, it's one of those words that the Byzantine historians use occasionally now and then to mean the Rus. What follows is really amazing and really does deserve the full primary chronicle treatment. So the primary chronicle has this to say. Oleg disembarked upon the shore and ordered his soldiers to beach the ships. They waged war around the city and accomplished much slaughter of the Greeks. 
They also destroyed many palaces and burned the churches. Of the prisoners they captured, some they beheaded, some they tortured, some they shot, and still others they cast into the sea. The Rus inflicted many other woes upon the Greeks after the usual manner of soldiers. Oleg commanded his warriors to make wheels, which they attached to the ships, and when the wind was favourable, they spread the sails and bore down upon the city from the open country. I mean, this is amazing. This is just the most brutal things I've ever heard of. And also, it seems like the Vikings have now created some sort of early amphibious landing crafts. I mean, they walked their boats over land and then fitted wheels to them and offer a lot of massacring and destruction of property, of course. But I guess I should stop being surprised because this is really what we can expect from the Vikings. Yes, and this tactic of putting wheels on boats, I think, is used by the uh, later Turks sort of 400 years later as a way to get around this giant chain across the sea so it's not something uh, completely unusual in the sources indeed the ruse's ingenuity was rewarded because this time the byzantines just decide to pay oleg off instead of fight his walking sailing land boats so it's probably a good idea and the two sides sit down and they sign an agreement to stop oleg's attack and they pay his men off but also agree terms of a future relationship that's very civilized Still pagan, Oleg's men swear to their god Perun not to continue with their attack, and they head off home with their ships full of gold, but also some of that all-important silk to make new sails. Both sides got benefit from this agreement. It was a good thing to pay off the Rus. The Rus got loads of gold, they got new sails, and a bit of glory, and also a, a future trade agreement. The Byzantines, on the other hand, avoided a horrendous attack on their city and could also count on future trade. This agreement was actually the first of two trade agreements that were signed between Oleg's group of Rus from Kiev and the Byzantine Empire. This first one was signed after the raid in 907, as Oleg was there in person, and it includes details about how long Rus merchants are allowed to stay in the Byzantine capital, and arrangements for visiting Rus, plus, of course, how much they were going to be paid off to go away. The second treaty comes Four years later, in 9-11, as Rus envoys returned to conclude a peace and trade treaty. The Primary Chronicle relates a lot of this in quite fascinating detail, so we're going to go into that in a bit of detail. Yes, there's so much in this that it's really hard to know what not to tell you and what to tell you. But in terms of this being a History of Sweden podcast, perhaps the most interesting thing to start off with is the fact that the second treaty lists the names of the Rus envoys themselves. And so the Primary Chronicle says that the Rus sent Karl, Ingjald, Farulf, Vermund, Rulath, Gunnar, Harald, Kani, Thrifleth, Huror, Argentir, Thrurand, Leitulf, Fast, and Steinvif, all sent by Oleg, great prince of the Rus. The fascinating thing is that two names in particular 
Carl and Gunnar are, are names that Swedes are still called today. And Harold. And Harold. I, uh, I wish more people nowadays were called Hurrah, <laughs> though. That's a great name. That has gone out of fashion a bit. But I mean, I have Carl and Gunnar's in my family to this day. And some of the other names, like Leithulf, for example, you can kind of see how they have emerged into modern Swedish names like Leif. Some of them aren't super old. They might have just been stopped used in the last maybe couple of hundred years yeah. rather than, you know, a thousand years ago. So this is one of the big pieces of um, information that says that these are definitely still at least partly Viking and they're not being called Slavic names from the local population that would have been in Kiev before the Vikings turned up. Oh, definitely. But of course, these are going to be the elites of the Rus because they're their diplomats. So just a bit of both there to think about. True. And the next interesting section from the treaties relates to trade between the two peoples. The Byzantines treated Rus merchants living in Constantinople as different to those Rus who were just traveling around the area. And we can see how Rus merchants were treated by reading this first paragraph. The Rus who come hither shall receive as much grain as they require. Whosoever come as merchant shall receive supplies for six months, including bread, wine, meat, fish and fruit. Baths shall be prepared for them in any volume they require. When the Rus return homeward, they shall receive from your emperor food, anchors, cordage and sail, and whatever else is needed for their journey. The Rus travellers, however, had many more restrictions placed on them. The Chronicle says that If the Rus come hither without merchandise, they shall receive no provisions. Your prince shall personally lay injunction upon such Rus as journey hither that they shall do no violence in the towns and throughout our territory. Such Rus as arrive here shall dwell in the St. Mamas quarter. The Byzantine government will send officers to record their names, and they shall then receive their monthly allowance, first the natives of Kiev, then those from Chernigov, Pereslayev, and other cities. They shall not enter the city, save through one gate, unarmed and fifty at a time, escorted by an agent of the emperor. They may conduct business according to their requirements without payment of taxes. That part is very interesting indeed. It's interesting to see how the merchants get six months of supply and travel help when they decide to return home, and they also get my favourite part, as many baths as they like. Yep. We do like a good bath. Yeah, I don't know if that uh, is like one a month or one a day. But they get all this stuff. Whereas Ruse who just turn up on the day, they receive nothing. And Oleg has to personally swear on his honour that any visiting Ruse will not cause any violence and that the visitors have to live outside of the city walls. It's... It's clear which group the Byzantines favoured uh, when it comes to visiting Rus. It's like, we like the ones that bring stuff that we can trade, the ones that just rock up, we're not too keen on. 
even more interesting is that these non-merchant ruse, they have to be escorted by an agent of the emperor at all times who will record their names on some sort of list and that they must be unarmed. So it signals that they weren't quite trusted, it seems, but at least they don't have to pay Byzantine taxes, which is good news for them. Yeah, that's definitely a concession by the Byzantines. Every empire I know likes to impose taxes on visitors and traders, but Philip Parker notes that the terms that were given to the the Rus traders, including the six months of supplies, that was only surpassed by the terms offered to Syrian merchants. So the Rus were apparently doing something really great to get these favourable terms, being the second best group in the eyes of the Byzantines. I find all this detail so fascinating, but it doesn't all deal with trade, don't worry. Um, there's some more juicy bits of this treaty to come. And A lot of it is to do with prisoners and crime and punishment and also sailing and ships. Yeah, there is a lot in the treaty about who has the right to punish people for crimes committed in the empire and in the area of the Rus. So one clause stated that if any man strike another with a sword or assault him with any other sort of weapon, he shall, according to Russian law, pay five pounds of silver for such blow or assault. If the defendant is poor, he shall pay as much as he is able and be deprived even of the very clothes he wear. And he shall also declare upon oath that he has no one to aid him. Thereafter, the case against him shall be discontinued. For the time, that actually sounds quite fair the early 900s you almost expect them or i expected them to have to lose a limb yeah definitely like they just have to pay five pounds of silver or if they don't have that much money give them everything which yeah i don't know how they came up with that sum but it seems to be thought behind that price i found it quite timely also when i read the next passage which says If any Rus commit a theft against a Christian, or vice versa, and the transgressor be caught in the act by the victim, and be killed while resisting arrest, no penalty shall be exacted for his death by either Greeks or Rus. The victim of the loss shall recover the stolen property. If the thief surrenders, he shall be taken and bound by the one upon whom the theft was committed, and the culprit shall return whatever he is dared to appropriate, making at the same time threefold restitution for it. So if you're caught stealing something, you have to give it back and three times the value. So if you stole a loaf of bread, you've got to give him four loaves of bread back. And they're basically saying, yeah, if you're killed whilst resisting arrest, Oh, well, who cares? It's not exactly a sound rule of law and state of justice by any modern means. I I wouldn't want to live there under such rules. I can imagine uh, a lot of Vikings killing Byzantine people sort of like, oh, he was resisting arrest just because that was what they liked to do. Yeah, there is so much detail here, it is hard to mention it all. I would like to say that as the daughter of a merchant navy captain... I was glad to read that there was extensive clauses in there about making sure shipwrecked Byzantine sailors were taken home by the Rus and their cargo protected if they happened to run into storms. That's very kind of them. 
the rule of law might not have existed to any great extent, but they had very gentlemanly behavior at sea, it seemed. Yeah, and it seems to cover so many aspects of life, this treaty. is really impressive for a document or a, an agreement that's over a thousand years old. I think the main thing it shows you is that the Rus and the Byzantines were really concerned about coming up with a treaty that actually worked in reality and wasn't just a, oh, go away and take this money, because that would just mean they would come back at some point later, like we see across this period with the Vikings that go west into England. They're returning year after year after year, despite being paid off, because they don't ever really set up this future trading relationship that the Rus seem to have with the Byzantines. It does seem to work, at least in the short term, because it's another 30 or 40 years until the Rus attack the Byzantines again, by which time, you know, there's a new generation in charge, so they're probably wanting to do something different. It's just a great insight into how the Rus were treated by the Byzantines in with respect, but also a healthy dose of wariness because any violence was to be stamped out and the punishments levied on those who broke the laws was supposed to be there to encourage everybody to behave, as also said, civilly. Yeah, unfortunately, Oleg doesn't have too much time to revel in his diplomatic success and reap the benefits of renewed trade agreements with the Byzantine Empire. After 30 years of ruling, Oleg finally dies a few years later in 914. Igor, remember the baby son of Rurik that was being held up like the Lion King? He finally becomes the ruler of the Rus uh, from Kiev, but we will finish off his story next week as this has already become quite a long episode with a lot of information in and there's some great detail that we can't afford to cut short so we'll save it till next time instead. Yes, and I can't promise that it will be uh, finished quickly. There's so much stuff in there that is really exciting to talk about but I know people will want to get as much detail out of this primary chronicle as we can because of all these great quotes that it's coming up with. So have no fear, we'll be coming back and it involves even more fighting next week. So that's something to look forward to. For now, though, we've seen today how the Rus have developed from this small trading and raiding presence just with Novgorod and Ladoga up in the north to a huge state, really, that's ranging from Kiev all the way up to Ladoga. And that was fearful enough but profitable enough to negotiate these huge, wide-ranging treaties with the might of the Byzantine Empire that's been one of the superpowers for absolutely centuries. Yeah, and when they did this, their elites, their diplomats still had quintessentially Swedish name along with their religious pagan customs. Uh, on the way, some Byzantines did try and convert them, just like Ansgar had back in Sweden. But this initial foray into a new religion uh, didn't last very long. So next time, we'll see how Igor fares. There's a lot of stories about attacks on Constantinople and further evidence for them being pagan still, but also a little bit of Christianity involved. And we'll see how Igor carries on the mantle that Oleg and Rurik had left for him. 
We'll see how the Byzantines fare too, and how it all comes together in this big picture as we finally reach the end, at least in our context, of these Swedes in the East. Indeed. Uh, until then, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Drop us an email. It's flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Yeah, and we're on Facebook and Twitter. We've had quite a few messages and stuff from people recently, so that's been really good. And we've also been, you know, breaking records every week and every month for new people listening. I know there's been quite a few people in the UK who've been listening thanks to a Facebook group called uh, Swedes in the UK, which also has been posting yeah. about. So hopefully these new people are, are listening now. Yeah, shout out if there are any fellow Swedes who live in Britain, like me, uh, that listen to this. yeah. And very, very quickly, like all of the Byzantine emperors that we talk about, from Michael III to Theophilus to Constantine VII, they all have episodes on Totalis Rankium, which is my absolute favourite podcast. So if you want to listen to them, do give them a listen too. I can't get over Emperor Basil. I just think of Basil in Faulty Towers, yeah. that he was an emperor. Well, I'm one of the Titanus Rankium hosts. His dog is called Basil. Completely unrelated, but I remember when they got to Basil and Jamie found out that uh, there was an emperor named after his dog. So, <laughs> so yeah, whilst uh, you wait for our next episode, you can always head over and check out Titanus Rankium. But until next time, it's goodbye from us. Yep. Hey, doll. See you next time. <laughs>